As you're seated, please take out your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, just uh, raise your hand and one of the ushers will get one to you. We don't have the best cell phone signal in our little corner of the, of the world here, so we invite you to follow along as we look at God's Word together. If you're visiting, you'll, you'll need to know that we are a church that preaches verse by verse, passage by passage, and right now we find ourselves in the epistle that God delivered through the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. The first three chapters of this book gave us a, a deep theology and understanding of what God has done through Jesus Christ. A resounding, transcendent doxology is how Paul began the letter. And as we move through, at chapter 3, we transitioned to looking at life practically. What does this practically mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? To catch us all up on, on the episodes that we might have missed, I invite you to follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 through verse 21. The Word of God says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that it is timeless, that it is eternal, that it is unchanging. We thank you, Lord God, that it is sufficient to inform us of who you are, of your nature, and to inform us of what you have done on our behalf. We pray, Lord God, that as we hear your word this morning, that it would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us, that it would shine a light into the dark recesses of our lives, and that we would surrender every aspect of of who we are and how we think and how we act to you. You alone are worthy. 
We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Our teaching this morning begins at verse 15. Look carefully how you walk, not as wise, but as unwise. This is the final time in the book of Ephesians where Paul's gonna use the term walk. We've understood that how we walk and where we walk is describing our conduct. To recap, back in Ephesians chapter two, starting at verse one, Paul tells us where we walked before we came to know Christ Jesus. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. The first thing that we have to be reminded of as we come to today's text is that Paul started out by telling us how we once walked and where we once walked. Where did we walk? We walked where everyone else, 100% of humanity walked. And we learned that we walked following the course of this world. If you remember what we looked at there, we learned that course is that which is natural. A river follows its course to the sea. The sun follows its course in the sky. Our natural self follows a broad and easy path. And where does that path lead? To destruction. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Paul begins by telling us our walk, the natural walk was just like everybody else's, but God, who is rich in mercy, put us on a different path. He himself being the access to that path. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, said Jesus. So as we understand this concept of walk, remember where we would have walked but God in his mercy. Ephesians 4.1, Paul uses the word walk again, and he starts out by saying, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was in Rome under guard, imprisoned for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm a prisoner, not just of Rome, but of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called to. It's a worthy walk. It's a calling, not a calling that, that we deserve. It's a calling that while we were dead in our sins, while we were following the most natural course of walking, God got a hold of us and he's given us a call that we're now to live worthy of. We looked at the word worthy and it meant something like weight. We have a calling that should equal the weight of the grace and the mercy that Christ has extended to us. In Ephesians 4.17, Paul flips it around a little bit and he uses the word walk and he gives us an instruction of not to walk in a certain way. So he gives it to us both positively and negatively to make sure that we're crystal clear, right? In verse 17 of chapter four, Paul says, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles or the people or everybody in the world does in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance is in them due to the hardness of their heart. 
And we, we learn there that our hearts, before Christ got a hold of us, were darkened, hardened, deadened, and estranged. But God. And he renews our walk. In Ephesians 5.2, we're now told that we're to walk in love, just like Christ loved us. What did Christ do for us? While we were dead in sins, and while we were far off, while we were disobedient to God, he called us to himself and he demonstrated love for us first. He did that through the cross. He surrendered his life, coming, being very God, eternal, immortal, perfect, and surrendered himself on the cross for us. That was the demonstration of his love for us. And with that, Paul says, that love that Jesus described, the love that Jesus lived out, walk in that way, a conduct that is loving. We saw with Brother Patrick last week, what a joy to hear from Patrick, wasn't it? Wasn't it just a joy just to see his exuberance for what Christ has done in his life? We learned that we should walk as children of light, the light of Christ shining on us, illuminating that which would be sinful, would be dishonorable in our lives, and walk in a way worthy of the calling and in the light of Jesus Christ. And so that catches us up where we should be starting this week, verse 15, that we should look carefully in how we walk. See, we've been put on a, on a path that's narrow. Christ himself has given us the ability to walk on this path, walking towards God the Father, Christ being the only way. And as we walk, we need to walk with care, guarding our steps. The fans of the uh, Pilgrim's Progress will, will remember the bypass by the meadow right? We, we see that path and we look for a, a different way, an easier way, a way that's not so hard. And Paul says, no, look carefully how you walk. Walk with wisdom. Not unwisely, but wisely. Now, we've, as we move through the book of Ephesians, we actually haven't seen the topic of wisdom come up all that much. We see the word wisdom just three times. One is describing God's wisdom in his perfect plan. We also find God's wisdom as his way of manifesting truth about himself through the church. But if we look at Ephesians 1.17, we see Paul specifically praying for the saints, right? He just comes off of that doxology in Ephesians chapter 1 up to verse 14. And then he begins to pray for the saints. Who are saints? All of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And Paul prays for them. And look what he prays for them. Starting at verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. See, Paul's praying that we would have a spirit of wisdom to discern all that Christ has done for us. God raised Christ from the dead. God guaranteed for us an inheritance that is waiting for us. Paul prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom to, to properly take stock of those things and to live in light of those things. 
But when it comes to the topic of wisdom, we, we have more than just the book of Ephesians to lean on, right? There's 65 other amazing Holy Spirit-inspired books to help us understand wisdom. One of those we were studying a, just about a year ago, the book of James. And in James, we learn some incredible things about the practical wisdom that God allows for the follower of Jesus Christ. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously without exception. So, followers of Jesus Christ, do we have wisdom available to us? Yes, we do. It has been imparted to us. If we feel as though we are lacking, God gives us more. We'll come back to that topic in just a bit because we're, we're not lacking wisdom. We oftentimes lack the ability to apply the wisdom that we have, right? We don't use the gift that we've been given but we've got it in Christ Jesus. James also says in chapter three, verses 13 through 18, he describes what wise conduct looks like, similar to what Paul's saying. Here's what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see that? A wise walk is characterized by good conduct. James goes on to describe what unwise conduct looks like, right? He says, but if there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What we see here is that wise walking bears fruit. Wise walking is putting into practice the wisdom that we have been given from above. As Paul prays for the Ephesian believers, they have access to take stock of all that God has done for them. They have access to that wisdom. If we're lacking, as James says, we ask for more. If we apply that wisdom... It shows up as good conduct and as fruit. If we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we see Paul putting in a very parallel fashion the truth of what walking wisely looks like. Look what he says. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as we begin to unpack this, carefully walking, living not as unwise, but as wise, and in doing so, God gives us the grace gift of bearing fruit in season. That takes us to the, the next verse here that we'll unpack that we need to understand what wisdom and wise living look like. And Paul makes a statement here. He says, making the best use of time because the days are evil. We can take just a minute or two to talk about time. See what I did there? A minute there? The, the word that Paul uses for time is, is really important. There's a lot of different Greek words for time. One of them is this idea of chronos, a timeline. Now, we need to stop for just a moment and recognize that God is eternal. 
God describes himself as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. We cannot wrap our minds around this. And so, so God interrupts eternity. He punctuates eternity and he creates time. Time uniquely to help us understand as limited human beings just what his limitless nature looks like. Chronos, time. Genesis 1 verse 14, we see God establishing time. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate day from night and let there be signs and seasons and for days and years. This concept of time is a construct God created in the beginning, right? A dose of, of Zechariah for this week as we, we look at how that beautiful minor prophet helps us understand what God is doing in the middle of this timeline, this timeline of redemptive history. We have Zechariah pointing to a future day towards the end of time as God created it. And he says in chapter 14, starting at verse 6, God says through Zechariah, on that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there will be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer as it is in winter. And that, that little midpoint as we move towards the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the God-man points to what we see at the end of history. In the book of Revelation, we see Christ described as the unchanging light, the glory of God. We're told in Revelation chapter 21, there's no need for a sun. There's no need for a moon. Christ himself illuminates the new Jerusalem. Putting it all together, what we understand is that God created this concept of time. He owns Kronos. In Joshua chapter 10, we find something that even the smartest of scientists still debate. God tells us that he paused time. There's experts that still try to figure out, where's that missing day in the calendar, right? God can do that. We see with King Hezekiah, as, as God gives him a sign, he causes the sun to move backwards down the sundial in the king's palace. This God created time and he owns time. And he does this to help us understand that we have limits. Time is for a limited time, right? We understand as, as followers of Jesus Christ that his return is imminent. He is returning. We also understand as finite human beings that our life is only so long. Do we know how long that's going to be? To help illustrate this, I'll tell you that I made a, I'm not sure if it's a wise or an unwise investment yet, but we uh, purchased a used car um, for our son, and the used car comes with a, a number of features that don't work very well. One of the most endearing features that doesn't work very well is the fuel gauge. <laughs> I have no idea how much fuel remains in the tank. That means I'm going to drive it very carefully. I'm not going to venture very far. I'm going to make sure that there's a gas station on the right side, and I'm going to make sure I've got my billfold with me. And don't you see that as God tells us that we should walk not as unwise but as wise, that's what he's got in mind. Do we know how much time we have? No. Therefore, we must manage that time wisely. And in fact, what Paul says here is he says, making the best use of time. 
Another translation says, redeem the time, buy it back. You don't know how much of it you have. Manage it wisely. That's chronos. But chronos isn't the Greek word that, that's being used here. There's another Greek word too, which is aeon, and that's the word like an age, like a century or a millennium or a period of time. We find that word in, in Titus chapter two, where we're told to be self-controlled, upright, and live godly lives in this present age. Jesus also said, I will be with you even till the end of the ages. But that's also not the Greek word here. I'll get to the point. The Greek word here that we actually see is kairos with the letter K, like the, like the city in Egypt with an S, kairos, okay? This is a Greek word that specifically tells us that it's like a season. It's a season. So when Paul's saying this, he's like, make the best use of the season because the days are evil, Interesting that the word kairos is also the one that we find in the pastoral letters. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul tells young Timothy, he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So be ready in season is eukairos, and out of season is akairos. That word for, for seasonality is super important. It's important that we understand that Paul is telling us to make use of a particular season. Then he goes on and he says, make use of the season because the days are evil. Now, evil is a, a word that has all sorts of constructs in our mind that we think, you know, it's about Satan or about devils or, or all of these things. But the word evil really is talking about a time of toil, a time of hardship, a time of extreme difficulty. If we look at the, the season that the Ephesian church was in, it was a time of great persecution. It was a time of trial. Some of Paul's closest companions were people like Priscilla and Aquila that had to flee, not once, but twice, or maybe even three times, to get away from persecution. These were hard times. This was a difficult season. But it's in the most difficult seasons in the difficult times, the difficult hardships, where we're called to make the best use of time. In Honduras, one of the churches that we served at was very agrarian. Almost everybody there was a, a farmer. And there was a certain time of year where the sun was just relentless, so hot, intolerable. The ground was baked hard like concrete. And it was that season that people would show up just a little bit late from church because they were plowing and breaking up the fallow ground. And they were breaking up the fallow ground so they could sow seeds because the rain was coming, which would bring forth a harvest. So the application there for us is that we're supposed to make the most of our time of hardship because as we sow seeds and as we faithfully make the best use of that season, it'll bring fruit in due time. If we piece that together with the first verses that we looked at, we understand that We've been given wisdom by God to live a worthy calling, to bear fruit as we make the most of every season. Kairos, redeem the time. And then in, in verse 17, Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's will. Wouldn't we all like to know God's will this morning? right? Isn't that the topic of an, a countless number of books and a countless number of sermons, right? But let's not overcomplicate this, right? God's moral will is made clear for us. What's our conduct? How are we supposed to live? Well, God's word tells us. 
don't lie, right? We have these, these moral codes, don't steal, don't commit adultery. All of these things are given to us as clear directives. God's moral will is clear. Where stuff gets tricky for us is we want God's sovereign will, God's very specific will. What should I do next year with my life? What should I do next month with my life? Where am I heading with my life, right? But God, through giving us wisdom, through giving us the power of the Holy Spirit, allows us to, to understand what we're supposed to do in a given season of our lives. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Romans 12.2 says this really simply. He says, Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We pray for God's will that he would give us direction as to what we're supposed to do. Again, going back to James, right? How are we supposed to pray? Are we supposed to say, today I'm going to go to this city, or tomorrow I'll go to that city? No, we're supposed to pray. God, is this your will? Is this what you want me to be doing with my time? And that's what this verse is talking about. Leaning on the wisdom that we've been given through the Holy Spirit. The knowledge of God. God's plan, discerning what is good and what is acceptable. Mentioned it already, but Colossians 1, 9, and 10, just been an incredible way of, of bringing to life what we see in Ephesians. And Paul says, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. A knowledge of his will. It's not a, not a mystery to us as we pray in the spirit. Now, verse 18 of chapter 5 is an interesting one. Verse 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. How does this fit in with what we're talking about? Well, how do we just get on this, this wine topic, right? This is one that churches around the globe have split hairs on for a really long time. It's like, oh, uh, we don't get drunk, but we can have a little bit of wine. Uh, not really a wine guy, more of a martini guy, right? Like it, the Bible doesn't say anything about beer. It just talks about wine, right? We get caught up with what this text says. But the idea that Paul is beginning to, to lay out here for us is that we're supposed to be controlled by and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God. Let's unpack this just a little bit. As we know, Paul goes through and he has a lot of different lists of things. And his lists aren't always comprehensive, right? He's not just saying, don't be drunk with wine, but he's also talking about being controlled by other things. We can be controlled by envy. We can be controlled by anger. We can be controlled by gossip. We can be controlled by anything. But Paul calls out here, wine. Why wine? Well, for the Ephesians, they had this cult goddess, Dionysus. And one of the ways that they felt that they could have communication with this goddess was through consumption of alcohol. In fact, they would consume so much, they actually had something like a spittoon to allow them to, to throw up into. The more they drank, the more they were inspired. The more inspiration they had, the more they were in control or controlled by this goddess, right? But Paul's calling that out. That is not how you're called to live. 
Do not get drunk with wine. For those of you who, who have come from backgrounds or experiences where family members may have inflicted harm or pain in your life because they've been controlled by alcohol, these are things that we, we hand over to the Lord and we recognize that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're not to be controlled by alcohol, not to be controlled by anything. But Paul calls this out because he wants us to be steady state in how we live out our faith, how we follow the Holy Spirit. For those of you who, who don't know the pains of alcoholism or understand really how alcohol works, you, you might try going to observe a Padres game. <laughs> now, I've gone to a couple of Padres games so far this year, and, and at one point I thought to myself, why do people drink so much at Padres games? And then I watched them play, and I answered my own question. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, if you watch the behavior of people who are drinking, like second inning, they're funny, they're having a great time, they're happy. The fifth inning, they're about to get themselves bounced by security because they're becoming vulgar and they're becoming angry and they're becoming confrontational, right? And by the seventh inning, they're depressed and half asleep, right? You see that up and down, that roller coaster, right? That's just looking at the idea of alcohol, but we can, can be controlled by a lot of things that cause our emotions to fluctuate like that. But the life of the believer isn't to be like a roller coaster up and down. It's to be steady state controlled by the Holy Spirit. Looking specifically at alcohol, I'd like to share a quote with you. As we've gone through Ephesians, you've heard um, a wealth of the commentaries that by God's grace I have at my fingertips. This week I looked at both John Stott and James Boyce. Curiously, both of these brothers quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones. So whichever commentary, you get Martin Lloyd-Jones. I did not know this, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is not a doctor in theology, but he was actually a medical doctor. Just learned that this week. Sorry, I'm a little slow. Um, but Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this particular text in Ephesians, and he says, writing as a physician and a pastor, he helpfully compares and contrasts two states, drunkenness with the Spirit's fullness. He says, wine and alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, it's a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will find always that it is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimulant. He goes on to say, further, it depresses first and foremost the highest centers in all of the brain. They control everything that gives a person self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a person behave at their very best and highest. It deadens those things. Contrasting that instead with the Holy Spirit that keeps us on center, even keel, controlled by the word of God, discerning the will of God, and walking with a conduct worthy of the calling. Now, when we look at the expression, be filled with the Spirit, there's much to be learned about that, right? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, first of all, we need to understand that we are already filled with the Spirit. We learned last week with Pastor Patrick that things in Scripture are very binary. It's light or it's dark. When we come to have the salvation offered through Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're either filled or we're not. We're not half empty. We're not overflowing. We're either filled or we're not. 
we've seen in the book of Ephesians that the work of the Holy Spirit seals us, guarantees our inheritance. We're filled. Some branches of Christianity take this and tell us that we need to be just a little bit more filled. If we're overflowing, then we can speak in tongues or we can heal or we can do really incredible things. But if we understand what's being said here, it's not about being more filled with the Holy Spirit. It's about using the gift of the Holy Spirit that we've been given. The same as wisdom. You ever been given a, a gift and you put it away in a closet and don't use it? You ever been given a, a, a gift and you set it aside and you don't use it for its intended purpose? Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we ignore the filling of the Holy Spirit that we've been given. We learn about the, the grieving of the Holy Spirit. We can actually intentionally ignore what the Holy Spirit is telling us. John MacArthur preached four sermons on this one verse, okay? We're just gonna give this a few, a few minutes, right? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Four weeks, four Sundays on that? Incredible. But one of the things that we should understand about the, the word that's being used to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to keep on being filled or to keep keeping filled with the Holy Spirit. And Macar John MacArthur says that this has a couple of different implications. First of all, the idea of being filled with is that of being propelled by. It's very similar to a word like wind filling our sails. Which direction are we moved? Well, we're moved in the direction that is guided by the Holy Spirit. Another implication of what's being said there with being filled by the Spirit, it's to be permeated with, be saturated with, marinated in. In fact, it's, it's similar to the idea of salt, right? You, you season something with salt. We see that throughout Scripture. You put it in salt long enough, a salt brine, pretty soon, everything tastes like salt. So when we say, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's that your life would be so saturated with the Holy Spirit that those are the decisions that you make. Those are the attitudes that you reflect, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the third sense that Paul uses this be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by. And that's where the alcohol thing comes in, right? Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Live life, walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise, controlled by the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says, interestingly, about this very verse, he says, if you remove this one verse from the book of Ephesians, we would be hopelessly incapable of living out the call of being worthy of our calling. If we remove this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, everything that, that Christ has implored us to do through Paul, we would fall short of being able to do it. It's because of the Holy Spirit that we are able to live wisely and to, to walk carefully and to bear fruit. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, I don't have a slide for this one, but if you would turn to Galatians chapter five. We'll begin reading at, at verse 16. Paul, consistent, consistent brother. The Holy Spirit inspired every word that Paul wrote. And, and look, he's gonna talk to us about walking again. He says in, in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We're going to keep reading, but, but stop and think about this for a second. Again, it's binary, right? You're either going to walk in step with the spirit or you're going to walk in step with the flesh. The flesh following the wide path, following the course of nature, following the I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's what our heart does. That's what our, our heart does, but by the grace of God, Christ forgives us of our sins and our trespasses, and he takes away the power of, of the flesh, and he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. This is an inner turmoil. This is an inner battle. And Paul goes on to say, to keep you, for these things are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives some examples of what the sins of the flesh look like, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. We talk through those things together. Idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What a list. That's what we would have wanted to do if we hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of those things seem a little minor, right? Like a little fit of rage every once in a while. Driven through Los Angeles lately, right? There's other things on there that, you, you know, we can say sexual immorality. Oh, I would never right? But we looked at that. Those things are in our hearts. That is our flesh. But God, being rich in mercy, has forgiven us of those things and given us his Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to, to say in his remarkable listing of things here, he says, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Do you see that? Do we understand what's happening here? Paul has given us these lists of things that the flesh does, and then he's giving us these things that are the list of what the Spirit does. And he describes them as what? Fruit. And what an incredible list of things that are supposed to characterize a wise walk, a walk of someone who has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Love. Who doesn't like to be around loving people, right? Joy. Who doesn't like to be around joyful people, peaceful people, patient people, kind people, good people, faithful people, gentle people, and self-controlled people? This is what the church is supposed to look like, right? Because we need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And verse 24 of Galatians 5 tells us, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you see, only Christ can bring about this transformation. Only Christ can give us the power of the Holy Spirit to exemplify these things. Now, are there good people who can demonstrate some of these, these fruits? Well, sure, God's common grace, right? God's common grace allows some of all of these aspects to be viewed in mankind, but only when forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and only when indwelled by the Holy Spirit do we have the ability to live those things out in a way that is truly pleasing to God. 
You see, God's not just interested in, in rule following. God is interested in an inner transformation and a filling of men and women with his Holy Spirit. If we move on, going back to Ephesians chapter 5, we move from, from verse 18, which tells us to not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we break into this section where he says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. John MacArthur makes a, another interesting statement on this. He says, the, the spirit-filled believer can do some remarkable things, right? And, and first of all, I should back up and say that believers should be controlled by the spirit when they carry out their acts of ministry, right? God has given us his spirit so that we can do the work that he has assigned for us. If we look at Acts chapter six, for those of you who are deacons this morning, you'll know that the deacons that were selected were selected because they were men filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're a deacon, please don't deacon unless you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit. We also see that, that Stephen, who was one of those deacons, had one of the most incredible preachings found in the book of Acts. He presented the gospel in such a compelling way, in such a clear way, that the wrath of his fellow Israelites was against him. They stoned him to death. You know what God's word says? He was so filled with the Holy Spirit that he looked up into heaven and met his maker in that moment. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do ministry unless you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And with that, Paul transitions and he ta starts talking about addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Don't lead worship, right? Unless we're being controlled by and filled by the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting how Paul says this here in Ephesians. He says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs like speaking to each other in a musical form. Anybody here like musicals? I actually can't stand them. Please don't ever invite me to a musical. It's like we're in the really, middle of a really good dialogue, a really good story, and we start singing to each other, right? And, and so that's what I picture when Paul says, is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But it's not really like singing, good morning, brother, right? It's not that. I'm, I promise I won't do it. I won't do it. But it's with this idea of a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song in your mind. Have you ever noticed that what's going on in your Spotify, what's going on in your playlist affects your mood, right? It affects our way of thinking. When I was a kid, we had a rule that we weren't allowed to listen to secular music on Sunday mornings so that our hearts would be prepared for worship. And of course, with time, you figure out, well, if it's not okay on Sunday mornings, why am I listening to it on Monday morning, right? You, you figure these things out. But what we listen to and the songs that are in our minds affect our disposition. They affect what we're influenced by. You listen to angry music, you feel angry. You listen to sad music, and you feel sad. You listen to happy music, and you feel happy, right? But that's why, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are prescribed what kind of music we should listen to, what kind of music we should sing. Psalms. We'll look at these three things, right? Paul likes his lists. Paul loves his, his triads, right? We saw last week, we saw, or week before last, you know, sexual immorality, a, a, um, covetousness and, and uncleanness, right? These three things, we don't want to split hairs, but it is important that there's a distinction. So the word psalm, okay? In Hebrew, the word for psalm would be a, a praise to God. And it actually has a connotation that it would be something accompanied by stringed instruments, 
David had harps, he had lyres, he had all these things. For those of you who have come from non-instrumental churches, sorry to tell you, but it appears that the idea of a psalm from the beginning was to be accompanied by an instrument. We also learn that a psalm is uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that now indwells and fills the believer is used to inspire the psalm. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Speaking of Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Christ says that the Psalms were inspired by the Holy Spirit. By the time we get to the the day of Christ, him being the God-man in human form, the Psalms had begun to be written down. The people of Israel, while they were in Babylonian captivity, learned a lot about writing things down and, and keeping things in written form. And the Psalms were compiled as a list of five Psalters, five books, like a hymnal. So when we use the word Psalm in the New Testament, it's now part of the canon, right? And we still sing those Psalms, even today. Psalm chapter 3. We also see that in addition to these psalms, which are included in the canon and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we also have hymns. This is a distinction made between a hymn and a psalm. It's very slight, but we do see that Jesus himself sang hymns. It's mentioned ever so briefly in Mark chapter 14, verse 26, and it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine that? Jesus and his disciples, they finish the Last Supper. They finish the first communion and they sing a hymn and they go off to the garden. Incredible. Then we we get to spiritual songs, right? And it's not like these are of decreasing importance, right? We've got the psalms that are in the scriptures and we've got the hymns and we've got the spiritual songs. They, They all kind of go together, right? But one way of understanding a spiritual song is that it's a song that teaches us doctrine, We have lots of these, right? Some of us grew up with songs like, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I'm gonna let it shine, right? Or or, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. These are spiritual songs. And each of these has an important role in the life of of the believer to set our mind on things above, to allow us to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's uh, interesting, again, a parallel passage in Colossians Paul says in verse 14 through 16 of chapter 3, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. You see that? It's almost verbatim. But curiously, In Ephesians 5.19, Paul talks about making melody. And in Colossians, he says, in perfect harmony. I'm not a music guy. I promise not to sing this morning. But look what he's describing. He's describing how life in the body of Christ, in the church, which is the focus of Ephesians chapter 5, ought to be done. We're to be on the same page of music, singing from the same sheet of music, in perfect harmony, in perfect melody. To understand this, I grabbed another commentary this week from John Calvin. John Calvin talks about this singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and here's what he says. 
I could read this with a French accent, but I won't. St. Paul says, we should talk together in songs and hymns, and also that the same should be done with the heart, because the tongue would not only profane the word of God, if affection does not accompany the speech. Now, and he says that we must talk together in hymns, praises, and songs. It is to correct all foolish talk, to which we are much too given. For we see that all of us have itching ears, as it were. There is none of us who is not too keen to hear petty gossip. Of that, we never tire. He who has received on the one side is ready to speak it out the other side. And so the day passes away in things of no consequences, or else our talk becomes wanton and loose, fitted to infect good manners, and God will be offended thereby. Okay? I discussed this with our, our brother Robert, and he said, man, it takes a really long time to read a page from Calvin. So I'm going to paraphrase this one for you. It's kind of hard. Why don't you sing to each other instead of saying dumb stuff? That's my paraphrase, right? And, and that's really what he's saying. He's like, you know, correct all foolish talk. And if we think about that for just a minute, it's very difficult for us to walk into God's house on a Sunday morning and just sing songs of praise to God and then say dumb and foolish stuff to one another afterwards, isn't it? So if we did that every day, if we kept our hearts and minds filled with songs of praise to the Lord Jesus, we'd keep ourselves out of a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? Sing to each other. I want to also bring back a little something that we looked at with Brother Patrick last week. We, uh, we looked at verses 14 uh, of chapter 5, and we looked at what I like to call the, the wake-up song. Okay, What Paul says here is, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, so Patrick mentioned that this is, if you look for it, it's not in scripture. We can't find that. It's not a, it is written in the, in the Old Testament. So we come to think that it's probably a song. Now, if I mention lyrics of a, a song to you, and we're all reading from the same sheet of music, it's going to bring something to mind. Try this as an exercise. Okay, last couple of weeks, we've looked at the book of Jude. It's a one chapter long epistle that talks about false doctrine, right? But if I say to you guys, Hey, Jude, what happens in all of your minds, right? You're all going to be thinking, don't make it bad, right? You're going to have that stuck in your head the entire day long. And what if I say to you, no power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand. We're going to have that in our, in our minds today, right? I can mention just a portion of a lyric and it puts us all back on the same page because we all know that. We all sing that. And what I see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, in that, in that wake-up song, is it connects so beautifully with what Paul writes to the, Rom to the Romans in chapter 13. Look at Romans 13, starting at verse 11. Paul says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as is in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see the theme there? It seems like it's, it's from a song that they would have known. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Let the light of Christ shine on you. So that's what we're to do, church. Sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
We're going to end at, at verse 20 today. We won't make it all the way to 21. We'll save that for, for next week. But I, I do want to point out a couple of things here. Verse 20 says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw thankfulness as the, as the opposite of sexual immorality. Our response when our hearts are lustful, when our hearts are wanting something more than what God has given us, is to be thankful, to take stock of what he's done for us. And yet again, we see that as a key this week. If we recap the verses that we've looked through this morning, we see that the fruit of wise living is a grace gift from Jesus Christ. We see that wisdom is a grace gift. If we ask for it, he'll give us more. We see that time, a limited resource, is given to us as a grace gift. We see that, that hardship, the difficult seasons, those are given to us also as a grace gift. The Holy Spirit, which fills every believer, is a grace gift. The ability to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and worship God is a grace gift. So if we've been given all of these gifts, what can we do but give thanks back? We're going to use the gift, Lord God, that you have given us through your son Jesus. We are going to use these gifts to walk wisely and worthy of the calling to bear fruit from him. That's the, the byproduct of all these things that Paul is telling us. Thankful lives, spirit-filled lives, wise, fruit-bearing lives. And I want to close with Acts chapter 16. We're going to overlay all the things that we've learned with a, with a gospel narrative, okay? Acts chapter 16. I think it's just amazing how all this comes to life through what we see in this incredible account. So Paul, if we look at verse 6 of chapter 16, we see that Paul had some ideas on where he was going to go. Look at this. It says, And they went through the whole region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. You see that? Discerning the will of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, Paul, mm -mm, not going that way. Sometimes when we're discerning God's will, it's the Holy Spirit telling us not to do something. If we skip ahead just a few uh, verses here, we'll go up to chapter, uh, to verse 16. We see that, that Paul and Silas, after having shared the gospel with Lydia, she comes to Christ. And, and then they go into the city of Philippi and they cast a demon out of a girl who had been making a great deal of money for those who, who owned her. She was a slave. And the response of the people was one that created extreme hardship. If you look at verse 19, it says, but when her owners saw the, that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Okay, this is a season of hardship. They've been beaten. They've had their clothes ripped off of them. They've been hit with rods and they've been thrown into the, the inner cell, maximum security prison. Okay? Does that sound like a season of hardship to you? It does to me. But let's keep reading. Verse 25. 
about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Interesting response, right? We're in hardship. They've been directed by the Holy Spirit to this place. They've gone through. Their wounds are, are still bleeding. They've been placed in stocks. And their response? Hey, Silas, you know that one hymn? Let's sing that one. Let, let's sing a song of praise together. And everybody who was there was observing their wise conduct. As they redeemed the time, goes on to say, the prisoners were listening to him, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. God intervened supernaturally, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now let's just think about that for a second. God allows supernaturally for a prison break. What does the wise, spirit-filled believer do? I mean, if you ask me, you run for it, right? You've got a chance to get away, but what does Paul do? He, he intervenes and stops the jailer from taking his own life. Paul cries out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. And when they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them at the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see that? Wise walk filled by the Holy Spirit, characterized by singing worshipful songs in obedience with the Holy Spirit, brought about fruit. 2,000 some odd years later, and we're still reading about the Philippian jailer and his family that came to Christ. Application. In the midst of our hardship, are we walking wisely in obedience, planting seeds so that others will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? And there it is, the heart of the gospel lived out properly, it draws others to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's our mission, church. Preach what God has done for us in season and out of season. In seasons of, of hardship, all of it to bear fruit for the one who is worthy of all of our praise, who is worthy of the calling that he has given to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have come in, in human form, Lord God, to offer your life. You interrupted eternity. You have made for a limited time the offer to allow us to turn to you in repentance. We pray, Lord God, that we would, we would hand over those areas of our lives where our emotions control us, where our, our flesh desires to control us, and that we would yield ourselves to your word and to your Holy Spirit, that we would walk wisely, making the most of every, every day, of every season, Lord God, that we would bring about fruit, leading others to the salvation offered only through your son, Jesus Christ. Pray for my brothers and sisters this week that as we, we do make the most of our time, we redeem the time, that everything that we do would be intended to give you the glory that is rightfully yours. 
In Jesus' name, amen.